morning, I would like to invite you to open your Bible uh, to the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 3. I'm going to start reading from the verses, verse 6 to verse 10. But now Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news about your faith and love. He reported that you always have good memories of us and that you long to see us, as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all of our distress and affliction, we were encouraged about your sorrow about you through your faith. For now we live. If you stand firm in the Lord, how can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experienced before our God because of you? As we pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith. Tink, are you dying? Her light is growing faint. If it goes out, that means she's dead. Her voice is so low, I can scarcely hear what she's saying. She says she thinks she could get well again if children believed in fairies. Do you believe in fairies? Say quick that you believe. If you believe, clap your hands. Clap louder. believe quickly uh, it's from a movie finding neverland in like 2004 it's actually really really well done great movie might make you cry a little bit uh, but i always when i saw that scene i was like what is going on right now like just just say it it sounds so forceful right quickly clap louder come on but what's funny is um, maybe not funny in a sad way funny it makes me think oftentimes of what we can do as the church, right? Like, just, just believe. Just believe in the Bible. Just believe in Jesus. Oh, are you struggling? Are you having a hard time in life? Just, just have faith, right? And so we're going through the book of First Thessalonians, and we'll be going through Second Thessalonians after that. And it's this letter that Paul and Silas sent to the church in Thessalonica after their friend Timothy went and visited and found out even in harsh conditions, even in opposition, there's still a church there. There's still people who believe in Jesus and have faith and are following after him. And the idea, the thread of this first letter is faith, love, and hope. We read that in chapter one, and we're continuing to see those recur throughout. In fact, all this really is in First Thessalonians is over and over again, Paul reminding them about, hey, I was with you, and then I had to leave, and then I sent Timothy, and then I want to come back, but I can't. It's that mixed in with faith. We're encouraged by your faith. We want you to have more faith, right? 
love. We're encouraged by the way you love one another and love others around you. We want you to grow in that love. Hope. We want to give you a greater hope to hold on to even in the midst of affliction. And so all of those, really though, the, the order that he wrote that in is very intentional, I believe, because in, in this letter, what we're finding is that he's starting with faith and he's going now out of this, out of this faith and this good news of Jesus, you will both experience and display love to those around you. You'll experience love from Christ and you'll display love to others because of your faith in the good news that you heard from us. And then also that, because of this faith, this good news message that you've heard from us and you believe in, you have a hope to hold on to even in the midst of opposition, even in the midst of hard times and struggles. And so he starts with faith. And I wanna just kind of circle back to that because we, we are now in chapter three. We're getting toward the end of chapter three. There's only two more chapters after that. Uh, and let's just start with kind of the basics. Square one, what is faith, right? And that's a, an important question to ask in the church, I think. Because that's, again, a word that we use quite often, and maybe perhaps we don't really take the time to stop and think about, what does that actually mean? What is faith? And I, sometimes I'll pose questions to you guys, and I've thought about doing that right now, but I don't want to, like, this is such a tricky thing that so many people think we know and we don't, and I don't want to put anyone on the spot to say something, and then I got to, like, correct it. So I'm just going to correct it right now without you even saying it out loud, okay? That way you won't feel embarrassed, but whatever you have going in your head, we're just going to correct it because I have all the answers. I'm just kidding. Totally kidding. But what we're going to do is explore and hear in Scripture what that word means and what we think Jesus meant when he talked about faith and what possibly Paul meant when he was writing about it in here. Sound good? So that word faith actually written in that letter and in all the New Testament is this Greek word called pistis. It's P-I-S-T-I-S, this word right up here on the screen. Uh, that is the word, whenever you read faith in the New Testament, you're reading this Greek word. And what that word means is not to believe here in your head, not to intellectually decide, okay, I think that's true. And it's also not to feel it here in your gut, right? Not to go, well, this, this feels good, this feels right, I think that's right. But it's actually, I love this definition I found, and, and many commentators point to this definition, and then looking in the Hebrew dictionary points to this, to be persuaded to come to trust something. Being persuaded to come to trust. Tim Keller tells a story, this analogy of two hikers that go on this crazy rock climb on this mountain. They're way up super high, and on their way back down, they come to this cliff, and there's two little ledges to get down. There's one on this side where there's a little rocky terrain that they could jump down to. And then there's one over here on this side. And the two hikers are looking at it and going, which way do we go? And one hiker says, I know for certain this is the best way to go. We need to go this way because this is going to be the most safe way down. And the other hiker looks at it. And he looks at the other one and he reasons. He goes, I don't know. I'm not sure. I think actually this one might be the better way to go over on this side here. And the other hiker's like, no, 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 I am for sure 100% certain we go this way. This is the most safe way. And the other hiker goes, I think though, I'm not sure, but I think this side's better. And so this other hiker who is certain goes, all right, well, I'm going. And he hops down and he falls to his death. 
And so then the other hiker is like, well, I guess it was a sight. And he steps down and he's safe and he gets all the way down. Whose faith saved them? Which of those two hikers? Was it the one who was 100% certain? No, right? I think a lot of times what we do is we get this idea that faith is something we have to kind of muster up and we have to be sure of. We have to be so certain that we hold to it and we cling to it without a shadow of a doubt. Otherwise, God will not accept that kind of faith, right? But really the reality is faith is less about how sure you are of it and more about what you're putting your faith in. It's not how tightly you cling to it. It's really where are you clinging? And so the guy who was like, I'm not sure, but I am persuaded to come to trust this way is actually the one who gets down to safety. So a lot of times we, do, we get that idea, though, like, man, I just got to believe harder, right? Just clap louder. <laughs> just believe harder. Just, just drudge it up from inside, deep inside your soul. I don't think that's what faith is. I don't think that's the kind of faith that Scripture's talking about. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. This is actually where we're going to spend most of our time today. Hebrews chapter 11, in verse 1, the author of Hebrews writes this. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Some of your other translations might say, like, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, or the conviction of things not seen, right? But listen to those words. This is, this is not like you're, you're mustering up the ability to just believe and cling to something. What it is is you have experienced something, and you're hoping for this thing to be true that you don't even yet see. But there is some reason for it, right? I love, I love this translation, the reality of what is hoped for. We're going to unpack that a little bit. If, if you continue through Hebrews chapter 11, what you see is example after example of people who actually are clinging to a faith because they've experienced the reality of it and they can trust it. Verse 11 says this, by faith, even Sarah, this is talking of Abraham and Sarah, remember they were promised to have children, have descendants, and Sarah laughs. She's like, I'm too old. There's no way. Verse 11, by faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. She considers the matter. She thinks it over. She's got some experiences that have happened throughout her life in history before this to go, wait a second, the one who promises, he's been faithful before. Can he do this now? What's funny about this verse, though, is we know Sarah laughed when she heard it. When she first heard that Sarah's going to have a baby, she starts laughing. And she's like, yeah, right. How in the world is that possible, right? So she obviously didn't have, like, the biggest faith in the whole world when we think about it in that sense. But she considered the matter after doubting, and she was able to talk her doubt into a faith by considering the one she was asked to put faith in. Let's jump again. Verse 19 in Hebrews 11. 
This is speaking of Abraham now. He also had tons of moments of doubt and of messing up big time. But he considered God to be able to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received his son back, figuratively speaking. Who's this talking about? Remember, Abraham was promised children, promised offspring, promised to have a nation grow out of his lineage. And he finally gets a son in his old age. And then he's asked to sacrifice that son. Like, I don't know about you guys. I would have a really hard time having faith in that moment. But what does he do? He considered, another translation says, Abraham reasoned that God, God was able to even raise someone from the dead. And he says, figuratively speaking, that's what happened. Like, he was up on the mountain, ready to go, knife in hand. Figuratively speaking, he got his son back from the dead when a message from the Lord comes and says, stop. You're, you don't have to go through with this. You're not the one who will sacrifice your son on a high mountaintop one day. It's gonna be me. And so God provides another way, another sacrifice. But Abraham uses his reason. Let's skip again, verse 26. This is Moses. And Moses is talking about his faith as he was, if you remember, he was born into captivity. He should have been killed as a baby. All the firstborn sons of Israel, as they were slaves in Egypt, they were ordered to be killed toss into the Nile. And so Moses is saved, and he actually, by God's grace, ends up being raised in Pharaoh's own household by his daughter. And then Moses grows up, and he starts to see who he really is. He sees his lineage. He sees what's going on to his people. And listen to this, verse 26. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, since he was looking ahead to the reward. He considered. And listen, Moses is now considering something that hasn't even taken place. Who did he consider? Christ. Has Jesus been born yet? No, no, this is hundreds and hundreds of years later, right? So Moses is considering the promise that God has made as something that's going to come way down the road that hasn't even happened yet. And he's considering it in light of the way God has already been faithful to his promises. And he's going, this, this is what I'm putting my life on. Now listen, he grew up in a palace, right? He grew up as one of Pharaoh's own people. How much easier do you think it would have been for him to keep living that life? And instead, he looks at the oppression of his people, and he goes, the God of this people is my God too. And he's the God of all. And I'm putting my trust, my hope, my faith in this one. He considers and he reasons and he persuades himself to come to trust in this God. And this type of faith can do some powerful stuff. I want to read a couple more things to you from Hebrews 11. Let's skip down to verse 32. Listen to this. This type of faith and what more can I say, the author writes, time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. 
women received their dead raised to life again. Pause right there for a second. That sounds amazing, doesn't it? Who wants to live a life like that? I hear that, and I think about that song on, like, Christian radio. That's what faith can do. do you got, I'm not going to sing it because I'm tone deaf, but you know which song I'm talking about? You know, it's like, that song's playing in the back of my head as I'm reading this. I'm like, that's what faith can do. Man, that's incredible. That's amazing, right? That's the kind of life that, like, I want to call you guys into. Like, have faith, and you could, you could sell your own giants. You can move your own mountains, right? That, isn't that what Jesus says, right? Jesus says in Matthew 17 that if you have the faith like a mustard seed, then you can move mountains. It's incredible. Incredible. But I stopped in the middle of a verse. The author of Hebrews wasn't done. This is what else the author says happens with that kind of faith. In the middle of verse 35, other people, by their faith, other people were tortured not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were, this is not a magic trick. This is bloody reality. They were sawed in two. They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. So they wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. Sounds like John, the baptizer, hanging out in the wilderness. And everyone thinks he's crazy. Sounds like Jesus walking around earth saying, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Even foxes have holes to go home to and birds have nests. I got nothing. And he, he wanders from place to place and he's, He's kicked out, and then he's killed at the end of it all. Sounds like Paul, who spent most of his time in prison, where most of the letters we have in the New Testament were written. Sounds like Timothy. Timothy, we haven't talked much about, but he's the one who went to go visit the church in Thessalonica, remember? And he came back and brought this report. At this time, he's a young man. He's a young man. He's half Greek half Jew. He's got a mother and a grandmother on the Jewish side who we're told are commended by their faith. Those are women of faith in the Lord who brought him up in that. And he is kind of living and towing this line between two worlds of people who are, love God, the one true God, Yahweh of Israel, and yet these Greeks who are worshiping tons of false gods. And he's trying to bring the good news of Jesus to both, and both persecute him for it. And Timothy ends up being murdered later on in his life as well. That's also what faith can do. You about that life? You want to come and join me now? Hold on. I, I, I was all in for the moving of mountains. I was all in for the slaying my giants. I was all in for the being more than a conqueror, right? You're telling me I might have to suffer for this type of faith? Is that, back to our definition, is that persuading you to come and trust? But you know what? Jesus, that's not the only time he talked about faith like a mustard seed in Matthew 17. He also talks about it in Luke 17. And he says this, if you have faith like a mustard seed, then you could say to this mulberry tree to get up and be replanted in the sea. Now, at first, at first glance, 
you hear that and you think, that sounds like the idea of the mountain thing, right? Like Jesus is talking about this little mustard seed, maybe because it's this tiny little thing and it's right there and people can see it and it's a tangible illustration. And people go, oh man, that's all I need is just that much faith, right? And then, you know, you hear a preacher say that one day and then you're praying for something and it doesn't happen. You go, man, my faith isn't even the size of a mustard seed. And you start beating yourself up, right? So like, so, but if you just have like that much faith, like God can do big things with it. You can move mountains and you can even do impossible things like uproot a tree and plant it in the middle of a sea. And so you start measuring your faith out and you go, is it, is it that big yet? I was going to bring some mustard seeds, but our spice cabinet was all out, so I didn't have one. But it's, it's pretty small. We start measuring and we go, I'm not there yet. Man, God help me with my, my little faith. Help it to grow, right? And I don't think, and, and I'm going to have to persuade you to come and trust me on this, but then we're going to get to something else Jesus says about mustard seeds, and I think he'll actually do a better job persuading you. But right now, I'm, I'm trying to persuade you to come along with me for a moment. I don't think that the object lesson of the mustard seed for Jesus was, look how tiny it is, maybe part of it, but it wasn't in the way of like, if you just measure up to this alone, you're good, Right? And then the people who are doing really big things for God, they're probably like the size of a grape. And you'll probably never get there though, right? I don't think that's necessarily the point of the size of the mustard seed. Here's, here's the thing. Look at the imagery of taking a tree out of its roots, out of the ground, out of its soil, out of the sunshine, out of everything it needs for life, planting it in the bottom of a wavy sea. And throughout scripture, throughout the Hebrew culture, throughout the story, the imagery of waters was a picture of chaos. It was tumultuous. It was like nothing can live there. And so you, you replant this tree in the middle of a chaotic, wavy sea. And there's no photosynthesis going on. And it doesn't have great soil. And yet he's going, it will still be firmly planted and it will thrive. Do you think the Thessalonians needed to hear that in the middle of this chaotic culture, in the middle of this culture around you who's worshiping all these false gods, all these idols, in, in the middle of a life where you have just possibly been ostracized from your friends and your own family members for believing in this guy, Jesus, the people who told you the message have been kicked out, you've had your own friends beaten up for it, maybe you yourself, do you think you might need to hear something like that? Like, hey, in the middle of the chaotic sea and the waves going on around you, you can still be firmly planted in the good soil of the good news of Jesus. And the waves will come and crash against you and you will be able to stand firm. Kind of like when Jesus talked about, don't build your house on sand, build it on the rock, a firm foundation. When the waves crash against it, what'll happen? you'll be able to stand firm. Could it possibly be that Jesus is actually not just trying to get you to measure up to a standard, but he's going, listen, I have already given you the little kernel, the little tiny seed, all that you need has been planted for you to be able to stand firm in the midst of chaos. I've already given it to you. I've already planted that seed and when you think about a mustard seed, it already has the DNA needed for the mustard tree. 
All the DNA is there for it. It just hasn't sprouted and grown to fruition yet. And in our text this morning, 1 Thessalonians 3 in verse 10, that's kind of how we wrapped up that little segment is Paul says, I am hoping to be able to come to you to help complete what is lacking in your faith. And when we read that, we think like, oh man, what's missing, right? What could be missing? But remember, Paul's already been commending them for their faith. He's already been telling them how amazing it is that they have had faith even in the midst of their culture. So it's not so much that you're missing something. That's not what the complete, what is lacking. It's the, it hasn't grown to its fullness yet. And this process of sanctification, that's a big word, means us becoming more and more like God's perfect children, us becoming more and more like Jesus, our rescuer, our hero, our savior, us becoming more and more like the humanity God originally intended us to be. That's what sanctification is. That process starts with a little seed given to you when you are born again, when you become a believer in the good news of Jesus, when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in you and gives you new life, that seed is planted. And then this process of that seed sprouting and growing and even producing starts to take place. Here's the thing. It will not ever be finished until Jesus returns. So we're all still in this process. The gardener is still tending to us, but he's faithful. He is doing it, and he is producing something in us. Everything needed was given to us, though, at this moment of believing the good news, being persuaded to come and trust in the king and live in his kingdom. And now out of that, we will start to work out what it looks like to live in love and to live with hope, to live in the kingdom, even in the midst of a broken world. I want to give you that proof I was talking about, though, right? Because some of you maybe aren't convinced I could tell. That's never how I heard the mustard seed preached, right? Jesus talks about mustard seeds quite often, actually. It's pretty interesting. But I think another key, another key characteristic of the mustard seed is not just the size, but its resiliency. It's got everything it needs all inside of it already to be the tree, and it's resilient too. Like It can stand through pretty harsh conditions. It could sprout up through some pretty rocky soil, and then you get this mustard seed. There's something resilient to that. There's a study that recently was done by the Barna Group. If you guys are familiar with, uh, there's, there's the Barna Group. They do these studies on statistics with the church and with Christianity and with faith throughout the world. Uh, but particularly in the U.S., the study was done about millennials who have grown up in the faith in some way or grown up around the church and where they are now currently with their faith. And so I want to show some of those stats. We've got a slide for that of where they are right now. So there's four different categories that they identified. First, 22% of those in the millennial age, which I'm barely in, by the way. I'm probably one of the few bald millennials you'll ever meet who had some type of experience in the church growing up, 22% of them are what they call prodigals or ex-Christians. It means they have walked away from the faith. Okay, it's 22%. 30% of them are what they call nomads. That means they would still profess a faith in Jesus, but they have not been part of a church community for like six months at least. 
So they're just kind of solos out there. That's why they call them the nomads. 38% of them are the opposite of that. They're habitual churchgoers, maybe because their family does, maybe because it's just what they were raised to do. I don't know. But they themselves deny the actual power of Jesus at work in their lives. They don't confess to really believe this to be the true story of the world, right? And then you got 10% that they categorize as the resilient disciples. Just 10%. And we can look at that and it, for a moment, can maybe be very discouraging, right? Only 10%. I, I look at it, though, and I go, I can't believe there's still 10%. <laughs> right? Here's the thing, though. What they found about this 10% is not just that they're churchgoers. It's not just that they have a personal relationship with Jesus and pray before they eat a meal, right? But actually that they see all of their life, their jobs, their school, everything they do is in service to the king. It is done for the glory of God. It is living in light of the kingdom, the good news of Jesus. And what they also found is throughout this study, throughout this survey, is they found that that 10% of what they call resilient disciples, the reason they call them resilient disciples is because even when the culture around them thinks it's crazy, they're actually pressing in deeper to their faith. They're not just living day by day, like in the mundane. They're pressing deeper into that faith. And that's why this is actually encouraging to me. When Jesus talks about separating the wheat from the chaff, I think that's what's going on. We can look at this and go, man, we used to have more people in the church pews, right? I miss that. Jesus doesn't want butts and seats. He doesn't want church goers, habitual church goers. And he doesn't want the nomads. He wants people who are coming to live fully in his kingdom. And so what we're seeing is this mustard seed effect happening. Like resiliency in the midst of a crazy culture that people are actually growing deeper in Christ. And that is where Jesus is faithful to continue to build his church. Not by the work you do, not by you going to church more often, not by you reading your Bible more. How do I become one of those resilient disciples in the 10%? Jesus is faithful to grow his church, just like the one who designed the little seed is faithful to cause that to grow and sprout and flourish into this beautiful tree. Let me read to you what Jesus said about a mustard seed. Actually, before I do that, I want to read the end of Hebrews 11 because it's just good. Verse 39 through 40. It says, all these, it's talking about all these people who use as examples of faith, all these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. All right, if I ever try to tell you guys like, oh, you lost your job, just have faith. God's got a better job coming for you. Can you just slap me in the face? Because you may not get a better job. Right? These people were living by faith. They were called to live in a certain way, and they didn't even see what was promised for them. It didn't come on that side of the story. Why? Because it says so that they would not be made perfect without us. Paul's saying, or I'm sorry, this is the writer of Hebrews here. The writer of the Hebrews is saying here, hey, for us, and like first century, God was waiting for us. I could say that to us here today. Why has Jesus not come yet? Why did this promise not come when Paul wrote the letter, when the author of Hebrews wrote this letter? 
because he was waiting so that they wouldn't be made perfect without us, right? And who knows how many more people God wants to bring into his kingdom that we gotta wait for and we won't see the promises come through the faith that he's called us into. Be patient, be patient. Because Jesus says this about the mustard seed. Matthew 13, and I have this on the screen. I'll just read it with you. Verses 31 through 32, Jesus is telling parables about what the kingdom of God is like. So he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. There must have been lots of mustard trees around because Jesus is just like, this is a quick, easy analogy, right? The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes even a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Jesus is not talking necessarily about your individual faith right here. He's talking about his kingdom right here. And what he's saying is the kingdom has already been planted and it's already here and it will grow. It'll grow in resiliency despite the weeds and the thorns and thistles around it, right? And it will grow into a tree so big one day that it'll provide shade and nourishment to all around it. I love how this right here, Jesus is calling back to something. The largest of garden plants becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. In Ezekiel 17, which we also have, Ezekiel said this, on the mountain heights of Israel, this is God speaking through the prophet, I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. This is a prophet in the Old Testament talking about the kingdom of God coming to the earth. And this is how it comes. It comes on the mountain heights of Israel. And Jesus uses that same language of birds coming and nesting in it, finding shelter. What he's saying is the kingdom of God has come. And he's saying it has come through me. I got one more verse I want to tie us to that. In John 12, Jesus says this, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. What happens on the mountaintops of Israel? Jesus is raised up and exalted on a tree. Jesus, on the highest mountain of Israel, on the top there for all to see, is raised up like a tree. The kingdom of God has come. But that seed, Jesus is the mustard seed, that kernel of wheat, that seed had to die in order for it to produce more fruit, to give life to more seeds. So Jesus was buried in the ground, just like you plant a seed in the ground, right? And what comes out of that? Life, it starts to sprout up and Jesus rose again back to new life. And in the same way, he has given life to all these other seeds around. And they said, come, live the full life with me. Come into my kingdom, display what I'm like. He's given life to you and I as little seeds in that kingdom. So listen, you've been given that seed when you come to trust in Jesus, when you were persuaded to come to trust in the good news that there is a God who loves this world and he's at work to restore it. That seed was put in you. Everything you need for life and godliness, Paul writes elsewhere. Everything you need to live in the kingdom, everything you need to follow after Jesus was given to you. You don't have to muster it up for yourself. You can't do that. 
It was given to you by God's grace through Jesus, through that seed. And he has planted more. Now what you do need to do is tend to that seed. Tend to the garden, all right? Don't neglect it. Don't walk away from it. Tend to that. What you need to live in light of the kingdom is there within you because of Jesus and because of his spirit dwelling in us. Nourish it. Go to the gardener. Go to the one who brings life. Go to the one who could plant you firmly in the bottom of a crazy wavy sea and allow you to stand firm. Go to him habitually. Let him tend to you. Let him nourish you. Let him feed you. And you will grow strong in your faith. You will grow strong in who God created you to be from the very beginning. This cloud's passing over it, throwing me off, man. I'm like, what is happening? It just got dark. It's like, God, are you about to do something? Are you speaking to us right now? I'm the last, I, I better say, whatever this next thing I say better be good, because who knows, right? Like, oh, like, so you don't, <laughs> let me end it this way. <laughs> let me just say this one more time in case we didn't hear, right? Because our tendency is to leave from this place, and to leave from what we just heard, and go, well, then I guess I need to read my Bible more. And I guess I need to pray harder. And I guess, I need, please do those things. Read your word, pray, commune with the Lord, worship, spend time with him, get out in nature and look at what he's made and give him glory for it. Enter into your workplace and your schools and whatever you do and do your work to the fullness that you can and praise God for it. But don't do it to earn your faith. Don't do it to earn your place in the kingdom. Don't do it to produce something out of your own efforts. The seed was given to you and it's already there. I think that's the point of the mustard seed. God's the gardener. He's the one who planted and he's done all the work for us. Can we just join in with that? And we're invited to partner with him in that. But he's really carrying the load. What did we read this morning? Jesus says, come into my work. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why? Because he's doing all the work. He's carrying it. And like your little kid that's walking around and helping you, like you're carrying this big thing and they just have their little finger on it. Like, oh, look at me. Like that's kind of, we're, we're entering into that work with God. But he's the one carrying it for us. All right? And so we don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to try harder. That's not what faith is. Your faith is gonna probably carry you through some crazy stuff though. Who do you lean on when that happens? Many of you are tired, maybe hurting. I just want to say, like, stop working so hard. Stop trying so hard to accomplish something out of your own efforts. Enter into his work, and you will actually find rest. That's the, the faith I want to help persuade you to come and trust.